The reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought to the barracks, saying that he should not be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Ben. So um, that is in Acts 22. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, uh, but we are going to actually start toward the end of Acts chapter 21. So in your Bibles or on your apps, if you would turn there, um, that's, we're going we're to uh, go through quite a bit of scripture this morning, um, give some commentary on that, and then eventually end with some uh, application. But th th this entire unit is a story uh, recorded by Luke that we need to hear. Um, if you've been with us, you understand that uh, Paul is has finished his third missionary journey, and he heads back to Jerusalem, what we might say under a cloud, uh, because he knows, he's been told by the Holy Spirit, uh, that trouble awaits him in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has also told his friends and, and other disciples along the way, there's going to be trouble for Paul in, in uh, Jerusalem when he gets there, and they try to discourage him from going, but Paul said, the Spirit said, I have to go to Jerusalem, even though there's going to be uh, trouble. So we talked last week about how the revelation from the Holy Spirit was actually consistent. There wasn't any inconsistency there. The interpretation and the application of the revelation from the Holy Spirit was different, which is going to happen. Uh, we're going to have people get the same message from God, but we're going to interpret it uh, differently, and, and we have to wrestle with that and, and, and work through that and pray through that. But Paul, in the end, he knew he had to go. Uh, Paul understands that mission and purpose and destiny do not come through ease and passivity and comfort, but rather, in order to be a person of mission and purpose and destiny, there are going to be struggles and challenges. That's just the way it is. Paul knows that anything worth doing is going to have its challenges. It's going to be hard. And he knows it's going to take what we call faithful obedience over time. Faithful obedience to the call, the uh, um, uh, encouragement, and the grace of God uh, over time, and th these things don't happen quickly, and, and, and we're going to have different seasons along the way, seasons where we have great victories and seasons where we have what we feel like are losses, but all of it is through this faithful obedience over time and through what the Bible calls, maybe this is a kind of an old school term, long-suffering, patient endurance, but it is through these things that you and I actually find true legacy and fulfillment and genuine joy. This is where we actually find substance in life. I've been reading a lot of uh, social science research lately. It's just been amazing how really good 
research tends to line up with the Bible. And I know that's like a circular argument for some of you, but it does. And, and it's amazing to find out that now what the scientists who don't have a, a, a dog in the race at all with this Christian faith thing, what scientists are telling us is that this culture of consumption that we all live in, that, that joy and satisfaction and fulfillment is going to just come through consuming, 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 more, more, more. It's wrong. It doesn't happen. Nobody's happy with consumption. Nobody ends up with a life of fulfillment and contentment and satisfaction by just, by just consuming more. In fact, where we gain fulfillment, where we gain purpose, where we gain uh, our legacy is actually through production. It's actually through work. Now, we're not advocating for workaholism, but we are advocating that there is a production side that God made us for. Read Genesis 1 and 2. God made us to be workers and producers, not primarily consumers. And that's where we will find uh, fulfillment. That's in, in here you go, in the grind of life, that's where we can find substance in life as well. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, uh, and even with his best efforts, I mean, he t- uh, takes advantage of a strategy of the guys who are in Jerusalem. They say, you need to go into the temple and, and, and participate in the vow, the, this uh, Jewish vow, and, and pay for the other four guys who have been doing the vow, and do this, make a big show of it. Then everybody in the temple, uh, th- they'll quit uh, circulating these rumors about how a, a, you're a bad Jewish person and that you've gone off the rails, they'll see that you're really a good Jewish man and then maybe back off. And so Paul does all of this, but it doesn't work. And we're going to see what happens when it doesn't work. He's there for seven days doing his thing. And towards the end of the seven days, um, some people, some Jews arrive from Asia. Literally, they arrive from Ephesus where he had some trouble in the past and they see him, and they decide to make trouble for Paul. Paul is arrested. He's taken into custody. And what we have today is the first of, of several of what are known as Paul's defense speeches, where he gets to stand up. He's given the opportunity to stand up and actually defend himself uh, in various contexts. So like I said, I'm going to work through um, quite a bit of text for background and context, and then we'll end with some um, application. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this is This is a really challenging text. It's really hard. You see how mistreated Paul is for just being a Christ follower. And and some people might wonder, why why would Luke include something like this in the narrative? I mean, he could have... Uh, lots of commentators talk about how he could have sort of skated over this or maybe, maybe manipulated the facts and, and made it seem a little bit more palatable than it, it, it is. I mean, this is kind of an unhelpful text on the surface if you're looking to um, propose the faith to people. Well, this is what you get when you, you become a Christ follower. It's not a good pitch for the faith. Uh, and, and I would again just suggest to you that the reason is because Luke is a realist. Uh, he, he's not going to sugarcoat anything. He's going to tell you what real life is about. He's not an idealist trying to live everything in the ideal and then being disappointed when reality hits us. He's going to say, this is real. In life, even in a life of faith, you're going to have victories and you're going to have setbacks. And we need to be prepared for both. Anybody who says, just do life this way and you'll have nothing but victories... You need to stay away from people like that. You just do. He is a realist. I, 
I never asked the question about, I, I think, why Luke includes something like this because I kind of feel like I'm a realist too. I know life is hard, and so it's like, okay, so life's hard. He's recording that. Uh, so think about that as we're going through, but also be thinking about, here's Paul. Who has, served Paul, uh, who has served Jesus more than Paul? And look what's happening to him. Some of us have this idea that, hey, you know, I'm really serving Jesus. I'm really serving God. You know, nothing bad should happen to me. So be thinking about what might be going on in Paul's mind as this happens too. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, here's the big idea today. What's bad may be good. What's good may be bad. And, and in the end... Circumstances are somewhat irrelevant because with the faith of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we may joyfully endure whatever it is that comes our way. So here we go. Let's, let's kind of blow through uh, this text prior to what Ben read for us today, starting in Acts 21:27. When the seven days were almost completed, they're in the temple now doing their thing, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. These Jews from Asia, we find out later, are really from Ephesus. So Asia's an area. Ephesus was the city. They're from Ephesus. And there's one of two reasons that they may have been there. They may have been there because they followed Paul all the way from Ephesus and wanted to make trouble for him. I'm dubious on that explanation. A better explanation, I think, is it's, it's the high holy days in Jerusalem. There are Jews from all over the Mediterranean who have made the journey, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and that's why they're there. But they happen to run into Paul in the temple, and they remember that he's supposedly the guy that caused the riot in Ephesus a few years earlier. They see him, they recognize him, and then they trump up a charge against him as well, as we're going to see, which was completely false. And so they stir up uh, trouble for everybody, and they're crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere, a little bit of hyperbole there, against the people, against the law, and against this place. Against the people, against the law, and against this place. So here you go. They're saying, uh, Paul, who's supposedly a Jew, is teaching people against Jewish people against God's chosen, chosen, anointed people, against God's nation. He's teaching people to shun us as a people. And then they say he's also teaching against the law, the Mosaic law. He's blaspheming the law. This guy's a Jew and he's turned against the Mosaic law. He's got issues. He needs to be executed. We need to get him out of here. And not only that, but he's teaching against this place, this temple the temple in Jerusalem where God resides. This is God's home. He's teaching against this place as well. All of these things he's teaching against. And they want him executed. And then they find a charge for which Paul literally could be executed for by the Sanhedrin if he's found uh, guilty. So they said, uh, moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke explains what they mean by that. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, who's a Gentile, not Jewish, with Paul in the city. So they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. <laughs> so they, they, they trump up this charge of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which, by the way, there was an outer court in the temple where women and Gentiles could be. They're saying that Paul somehow snuck Trophimus in, all the way into uh, one of the inner courts of the temple, which... 
you could be executed for doing something like that, bringing a Gentile into that part of the temple. So they're trumping up a false charge against Paul. Does this sound vaguely familiar with maybe Jesus? Now, I'm not comparing Paul to Jesus, but much of the circumstances with Jesus are very, very similar. Um, Suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Israel was in confusion. So this tribune is the commanding officer of the military presence for Rome in a city. So he's the commanding officer over all of uh, the military presence in Jerusalem there. And his one job is to keep things peaceful in his city to quell any riot, any uprising. That's his one job, to stop all of that. And he has the power, uh, the power of the Roman government behind him to execute any person who starts a riot or participates in a riot or participates in any sort of uprising, regardless of what the circumstance. You can be 100% right, but if you're participating, he has the right to have you executed. As they were seeking to kill him, uh, word came to the tribune of the cohort of all of Jerusalem, was that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when the crowd saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They were like, I think we better stop because they could just start killing us. We, they don't even need a trial to do this. Then the tribune walked, came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains, so hands and feet. He inquired who Paul was and what he had done. So he, he asked Paul, who are you and what have you done? And notice who answers. The frenzied crowd answers. This has never happened before in any situation in the history of the world. And then verse 34. Verse 34 is exactly why I don't watch any cable news anymore. Last two years, I have exercised the demons of cable news from my life. Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, it doesn't matter. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. That's what I feel like watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. So I've just given up on it, okay? And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. The soldiers had to carry him up high because of the violence. For the mob of the people followed, and they were crying out, away with him, away with him. Again, the similarity to to what happened to Jesus is amazing, because the crowd was yelling, away with Jesus, crucify him, away with Jesus, crucify him. This vernacular, away with him, is take him out and crucify him. We're done with him. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said to him, oh, you know Greek? That's interesting. He said it in Greek. So here's Paul, the Jew, speaking Greek. The problem is the tribune thought that he was an Egyptian. Watch what happens here. He says, do you know Greek? He says, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So what had happened earlier, we know this from history, Josephus the historian records this for us, this whole event of this Egyptian who brought 4,000 men up to Jerusalem and tried to attack Jerusalem. Felix, who is the Roman governor over this area at the time, we're going to meet him in the next week or two, 
He resides in Caesarea, but he knew this was coming. And so he gathered the Roman soldiers and they were able to resist this invasion from the Egyptian. They drove him out into the wilderness, but there was some tension because they were thinking maybe these guys are going to come back and try to attack again. The tribune thought that Paul was this Egyptian leading this this, uh, rebellion. And when he spoke Greek, he realized that it wasn't the Egyptian. So he said, so who are you? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a a citizen of no obscure city. Now, this is interesting. This should have been a hint to the tribune that he's a Roman citizen, but it goes past the tribune. He misses it, and we'll see that this becomes important uh, later on. But he also says, I'm from Tarsus. That's kind of a big deal, okay? And people know who I am. He's not saying this arrogantly. He's just saying, you know, I have, I have some skin in this game here. I'm not an outside agitator. I belong here. And he says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand, there it is again, whatever that is, to the people. And there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make Uh, in front of you. So a couple of things here going on. First of all, it's amazing that the tribune even lets Paul speak. That's that's just an act of the grace of God that he gets to even speak, although he never finally gets to his the main final point he wants to make, and you'll see how he gets cut short. Uh, So that's pretty interesting. Understand he's speaking to a crowd that has no interest in due process. They are interested in just killing him. And if the cohort were were to walk away, they would kill Paul at that point. So they don't want a trial. They don't want due process. They already have a conviction, and they just want to kill him. So Paul is going to speak to these people, okay, who would like to kill him, which is also interesting. And then uh, he he speaks to them in the Hebrew language, which is interesting also. It, it, It sort of lets them know, hey, I'm one of you. I'm actually an insider, we, we're kin, we have a connection, and the Hebrew language is actually not Hebrew, because that's not what the Jews were speaking in the first century, they were speaking Aramaic, which is also a Semitic language, it's a sister language to Hebrew, but now he addresses them in Aramaic. Paul is proficient in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek. Have I mentioned before that Paul's a really, really smart guy, okay? And, and the found, here's the foundation of Paul's defense, I want you to hear this. The foundation of Paul's defense is he's going to connect with his crowd and say, I'm a Jew just like you. And let me tell you something. If this, what has happened to me, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and being called into this ministry, if that had happened to you, there isn't a single one of you that wouldn't have done what I've done. You would have been converted too. We've been waiting for, for, for centuries, centuries, for the Messiah to come. I will tell you, I have met the Messiah. There is no way I could not talk about this. There is no way that I could not minister to people in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no way that you wouldn't have done exactly the same thing. That is the foundation of his defense. He's going to connect with the people or try to and say, essentially, implicitly, you would have done exactly the same thing. But now, this is, I think, also, before we move on and hear his defense speech, this is really important to think about. How do you think Paul is feeling in all of this? What's going on inside of Paul? We know what he said. He's put on a very brave face, right? I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus. 
We've all said things that we're courageously willing to do. And then it gets really, really hard. And what happens inside? Even though outwardly we're doing it inside, isn't there some fear? Isn't there some trepidation? Here, here you go. Do you think that Paul, maybe as he's standing there and these people want to kill him, do you think that maybe Paul is even thinking to himself, Jesus, are you there? Are you abandoning me? Have you left me? Who in this room who calls himself a follower of Christ has not at some point said that to themselves? I have. I think all of us have. I think that's the normal human condition. We still wrestle with our flesh. We still wrestle with uncertainty. We have faith, but this is real life. Uh, John the Baptist did this. John the Baptist was Jesus' herald. He's the guy that trumpeted Jesus and introduced him to his three years of ministry. Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest man who's ever lived. John the Baptist, when he was about to be executed for his faith, his head was cut off and served on a platter. Right before he was executed, he sent word to Jesus, are you really the one? I'm not so sure anymore. John the Baptist said that. King David a man after God's own heart. That's how he's described in the Bible. He writes psalms, many psalms, asking the question in the midst of that prayer, God, where are you? God, have you left me? God, have you abandoned me? I think Paul is probably going through this, and legitimately. Now, I don't say that to excuse it, but I do say it to bring this out. Two things. I know from experience, from talking to people, that when people do question whether or not Jesus is with them during hard times and they get through the hard times and they realize, oh, Jesus was there, the fact that they question brings around a lot of guilt and shame and embarrassment that they question Jesus. I'm here to tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Christ on the cross and his resurrection covers that too. We don't need to lean into that guilt and shame. We need to accept it for what it is, confess it, and move on. And then on the other side of that, what we really do need to do is recognize that this is an opportunity to lean into our faith, to lean into who God is, to claim that promise in the book of Hebrews that we are able to come boldly and with confidence to the throne of God's grace in hard times, and he will open up his arms to us, and he will gather us into his lap. So, so we need to shun this Guilt and shame, that's just from Satan, man. If you're in Christ, that guilt and that shame, it's Satan talking to you or his demons, whatever. But we need to press into the boldness and confidence that we have in Jesus. So he says, he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. This is his, what you might call his bona fides. It's his credibility, He's connecting now. They're going, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we better listen to this guy. Is this maybe Saul, that guy that used to be with Gamaliel? And we'll see. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He's the greatest Pharisee, the greatest rabbi ever to live. And he was educated by this guy. And he's saying, looky here. Here's my credibility. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, I'm with you, man. I love the law. I love Moses. 
being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. You're zealous for God? I get it. I'm zealous for God. Here's the little nuance, though. The, the zealousness that you have for God is misguided right now. Just like the zealous uh, attributes that I had for God, it was misguided for quite a while as well. And I want to tell you about how to redirect that zealous approach for God into the right place. But we're all zealous for God. I get that. I persecuted. Here's how zealous for God I was. I persecuted this way to the death. I killed Christians. I bound them up and took them into prison. Um, To the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. He didn't discriminate. Anybody who followed Christ, he would take into prison and have them executed. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness... You don't think I was being a good Jew? Go and ask the council. They'll tell you. Okay? From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And then he tells his version of the story of his salvation on the road to Damascus. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? We need to understand that when the church is persecuted or when a Christian is persecuted, Jesus takes it personal. You're persecuting Jesus as well. And he sees it that way. So he says, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? See, Paul gets knocked off his ride. There's this bright light. He hears this voice. He's not thinking that, oh, this is some street robber going after me. He knows he's talking to the Lord God. That's who he's talking to. So he says, who are you, Lord? And he said to, to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, again, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. We know that from Acts chapter 9. We've seen this story. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, we remember from Acts chapter 9 that Paul was blinded. I was led by the hand by those who uh, were with me, and we came into Damascus. And then uh, the next few verses, Paul actually gives us a few uh, details that we didn't get in Acts chapter 9. There's some additional detail that we get. And this one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. So Paul gives us a little bit different picture of Ananias. Ananias is a follower of Christ, but Paul is accentuating his Jewish ethnicity to further connect him to his audience there. This is very strategic uh, by Paul. And And he said that Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. In Acts chapter 9, it was described as scales fell off of Paul's eyes and he was able to see. And Ananias said to him, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to know God's will. You were appointed to know what God's will is. That means to submit to Jesus, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. That's already happened on the road to Damascus. That's happened for you will be a witness For him, for Jesus, to everyone 
of what you have seen and heard. Now, Paul is going to be called as the apostle to the Gentiles, but that means he's going to tell everybody along his path about Jesus, and that includes starting with the Jews because he goes into the synagogues. We've talked about this during this whole series in the book of Acts. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Notice Ananias says, if you're a believer in Christ, don't wait to be baptized. That's the first call of Jesus on your life is to identify with him through baptism. I'll tell you, I've heard, some, I've heard a lot of excuses for why somebody doesn't want to get baptized. And you just need to hear that Jesus says, repent and be baptized. It's the next thing after you come to Christ. And we baptize people on every fifth Sunday. So if you need to be baptized, we're ready to do that with you. Uh, Verse 17. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into into a trance. Again, we didn't get this in Acts chapter 9, but now Paul is telling us what happened to him. He went from Damascus down to Jerusalem. He's in the temple praying. He fell into a trance and saw him, God, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. The Jews in Jerusalem will not accept your testimony. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. We, we remember that story as well, the story of Stephen the martyr. Saul was there collecting the cloaks of those who would who would kill Stephen. He's saying, why, why, would the, why would the Jews not trust my witness? I used to be as zealous as they are, persecuting Christians. Why wouldn't, I, um, why wouldn't they believe me? So he's arguing with God about leaving Jerusalem. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's what triggers the audience. Jesus says, no. I have something else for you. I'm going to send you to Tarsus. You're going to be there for 13 years preparing for your ministry. And then, and then they get triggered because he says, the Lord is going to send him to the Gentiles. And here's what the crowd says. They says, not those people. Not those people. Now, isn't this ironic? The Jews are called as God's people to do what? to be the light to the nations for God. And this is what their faith has evolved into now. We'll be the light of the nations to those people we darn well feel are worthy of being a light to. And it's certainly not going to be those Gentiles, not those people. Church, let me challenge you right now. Let me just challenge you. This is going to go right to your heart, I know. And it's hard. But are we a not-those-people church? Are we a not-those-people church? Are we willing to go to some who have shown some promise, maybe, and who I seem to be a little bit comfortable around? Maybe I can connect with them but not those people. And I know you'd never say it out loud. I'd never say it out loud. But in our hearts, are we saying about some people, not those people, the gospel is for everyone. We cannot be a church that is a not those people church. We can't. We have to endure things that we personally don't like 
we have to endure things that personally are going to offend us if we're going to be God's people called to spread the gospel. That's just the way it's going to be. We're going to have to endure political opinions that we don't care for. We're going to have to endure all kinds of insults. And we're going to look at people and go, not you. Not you then. But the gospel is for everybody. And Jesus says, love your enemies. Here you go. As long as I'm digging myself a hole right now, I'm going to dig a little bit more, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we actually had some measure of respect for um, uh, the president and vice president and, and, and senators and representatives. And, and now, uh, just in the last 10 years, I frankly have just been, uh, maybe I'm just naive, but I've been shocked by the number of people who so so can so callously say, I wish President Obama would be assassinated. And now, who so callously can say or even call out on social media, I wish President Trump would be assassinated. And I'm not talking, here you go, I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about people who call themselves Christ followers, who go to church every morning with a Bible under their arm and they're calling for the assassination of somebody. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Paul, to be standing there, and they're screaming and yelling, away with him, execute him? Is that fair? Is that ours to judge? That's a problem. The church can never, ever be a not-those-people organism. We can't be like that. So important. Well, here's what happens. In verses uh, 22 through 29. Up to this point, they listened to him. They heard that Gentiles thing. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Away with him from the earth. What do you think that means? We're going to throw him really high and see what happens. Okay? All right? For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, here you go, uh, that's their version of rioting back then. That's their version of going downtown and breaking out store windows and and turning cars upside down and lighting them on fire. That's their version. All they had was cloaks and dust. That's the best they could do. And so they're throwing those things in the air. And the tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. They're going to torture Paul to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Certainly Paul has done something wrong for them to be so angry. Certainly Jesus did something wrong for them to be so angry, right? This is mob rule. But when they had stretched Paul out for the whips, so here's what happens. The the tribune goes in, he tells the cohort, okay, start examining Paul by by torture. You're going to stretch him out to whip him. And, And the reason they would stretch you out to whip you is because they want a broad easily hit area. If you're getting whipped and you're not stretched out, you're going to do this and you're going to make yourself as small as possible. So they stretch him out, they tie him out like that so he's really big and they put the, the um, centurion in charge of this while the tribune goes into his office and has a, has, a, has a craft beer and a cigar. I'm making that part up, but he's doing something in his office while this is going on. So they stretched him out for the whips and Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? (laughs) And the centurion says, excuse me? (laughs) What? 
Okay, so they did have due process for Roman citizens. If you weren't a Roman citizen, they could do whatever they want. But they had due process for Roman citizens, and now they're finding out for sure that Paul's a Roman citizen. So in other words, this is their version of innocent until proven guilty. You can't bind, condemn, or whip a Roman citizen without a trial first. There has to be a trial. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, what are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? So the tribune, is he's not convinced. He came in and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, yes. And the tribune answered, well, I bought my citizenship for a large sum of money. How do you like that, Mr. Prisoner Paul? Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. You could be a Roman citizen two ways. You could either buy your citizenship you could be one by birth, and actually being one by birth trumps buying a citizenship. So his citizenship is actually more powerful than the, the uh, tribunes. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to let him go. They're going to keep him in custody, but the fact that Paul's a citizen now makes things a little bit more pliable for Paul. Now he has some rights. Now he gets to start to uh, assert his rights. And ultimately, what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that Paul eventually is going to be tried in Rome. He keeps getting tried. They keep having problems with Paul because every, the, the people who are trying him, the governors and such, they want to let him go because they can't see that he's done anything wrong. But they can't because the people just mob rule. And so finally, Paul has said, look, I want to take care of this in Rome. Now, what's been Paul's goal in his ministry this whole time? To get to Rome. To get to Rome. Isn't that interesting? But he's going to go in chains. He's going to get to Rome, but he's going to go in chains. He's going to do it God's way, not his way. And God's way is that he's going to go in chains. So much irony. Some people think it was bad that Paul got arrested, was it? He gets to go to Rome. He doesn't have to pay for his trip now. He's in the custody of the Roman government, okay? And he gets to be an insider in the Roman government. He spends two years in Rome in the prisons, but he's under house arrest, so he can pretty much roam around. He gets to talk to prisoners in Rome, and he gets to talk to all the Roman guards and the centurions and Roman people involved in the Roman government. He gets to tell them about Jesus. This is better than if Paul had gone as an outside missionary. It's just amazing. I love this parable. Let me read you this parable. There was a man who had one horse and one son. One day the horse, out of control, wandered away with a boy on its back and they were both lost. And the man's neighbors came to console him the next day, and they said, We are so sorry you lost uh, your horse and your son. It is so bad. But the man said, How do you know that it's bad? The next day, the horse and the boy wandered back home. Trailing behind the horse were 13 wild horses that came right into the corral. The neighbors came to congratulate the man for having the horse and the boy back and 13 new wild horses. They said, That's so good. The man replied, Well, how do you know that it's good? The next day, the boy was trying to break one of the wild horses, and he was bucked off, and he broke his legs. And the neighbors came over, and they said, we're so sorry, it is so bad. And the man said, well, how do you know that it's bad? The next day, 
The warlord came to confiscate all of the able-bodied young men for his war, but the man's son could not go because his leg was broken and it was good. Think about many of Jesus' followers and friends and family, they thought the crucifixion was bad. But the crucifixion for us was good and for them was good because it's our redemption. For, for the Romans and the Jews, they thought the crucifixion was good. Actually, the crucifixion was just the beginning of their troubles because Jesus came busting out of that tomb. Now they've really got a problem. And so for them, it wasn't so good. We've all had this, we've all had this in our lives, right? You know, we, we realize later that what we thought was bad was good and what's good is, is bad. Just a couple of examples. You know, somebody just won $752 million in the lottery, okay? Wouldn't it be good to win the lottery? God, please test me with winning the lottery. That's my prayer, okay? All right? Okay, here's what we know from the research. Chances are 75% that within five years, this person who won $750 million will be bankrupt. Three out of four bankrupt within five years. How is that possible? You just lose perspective. You make bad decisions. Here's the other thing we know. Whether she goes bankrupt or not, we do know from research that she will probably end up depressed. Here's why. We think money is going to solve all of our problems. Tom Schrader once said, if the only problems you have money can solve, you don't really have problems. So she'll end up depressed. Now, I know some of you are thinking, come on, let me, let, go ahead, test me with that. How about a work promotion? You work so hard for that work promotion, you get promoted, and then you find out you're doing twice the work for half the money and it's not working out so well for you. Management is really hard sometimes compared to sales, right? Um, some people, they get laid off or fired. They're devastated, and then six months later, they're like, I got the best job I've ever had in my life, and I never would have been looking for this job if I hadn't been fired. I have a friend. I lived in Chicago for five years in the early 80s, and uh, we worked downtown and, and lived a little bit away from downtown, so we'd take the train in every morning and the train home to, uh, at night. We worked for the same company, and... and um, we kind of always got a kind of a late train, like around 7, so they weren't running as often then, but there was this one train that we'd always try to get, and he missed the train one day, and sorry, I'm not a very good friend, I wasn't waiting around for him, because the next one was an hour later. And so I didn't wait around for him, went home. The next morning, we got to the train station, I said, missed the train, and he says, yeah, he said, I was like 30 seconds late, I just missed it, I was so angry. He said, I had to wait a whole hour for the next train. So he said, but I got on the next train. Weirdest thing happened. I'm sitting there, and this woman comes over and sits next to me. And she's incredible. And we start talking. Next thing you know, I've got her phone number. We're having a drink together Saturday night. A year later, they were married. I know this isn't the crucifixion, but... <laughs> Love connection. <laughs> I was running with a group of guys yesterday morning. We were on kind of a long run, and it was so hot and humid, and it was getting really tough. And at one point, one of the guys said, here's what I heard. You got to embrace the suck. <laughs> Let's embrace the suck. Certainly not the crucifixion, but after God saved me, I'm, 
I always thought that I was going to end up being a, go- a college teacher. I left the marketplace and business and went back to school. That was my track. I was going to become a college professor. It was, a clear, it was the clear desire of my heart. It's what I thought God was calling me to. It's what Jackie and I were pointing to. I was headed for an Old Testament, um, a, a PhD in Old Testament theology. We were going to move to be able to do that. And then lots of stories, but the Holy Spirit impressed upon me to apply to Arizona State University. That had to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, apply to Arizona State University to work on a master's uh, in, in uh, human communication theory. And I did, and I got in, and I, and I got that master's. Um, uh, I was going to teach at a Bible college or seminary, and then God started calling me into pastoral ministry. And I, and, and I just, I resisted that. I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a professor. I resisted pastoral ministry. He kept calling, he kept calling, and kept calling, and I didn't want to do it. And, and finally, kind of under protest, I decided, all right, and, and some of you know the story. I made a deal with God. I said, all right, I'll tell you what. I will, there's a church, there's my church before I came here, up on Greenway and 42nd. I said, I will lead this church, God, um, but you have, to, I, you have to make me a promise. I, I never have to do prison ministry, and if you could just kind of keep, kind of keep the hospital visits at a minimum, everything will be just fine. It's amazing how that has worked out. Most of you know that one of the greatest passions I have is, is for the prisoner now. God just changed my heart. But what really got to me was the idea that I wasn't going to be a teacher. And then, out of nowhere, I was asked by Grand Canyon University, before it became what it is today, when it was still a small liberal arts school, to um, be an adjunct instructor of communication over there, one class a semester. And then Fuller Seminary here in Phoenix came and said, we need an adjunct instructor of communication uh, to teach here. And then I tried at Paradise Valley Community College. I went to them and I said, hey, do you need an adjunct instructor of communication? And Dr. Cristiano so graciously, this is, I love this story. She said, we have one class. It's a Friday morning class for 13 weeks. It's three and a half hours long. It's never made. We've never gotten enough students to register for it. And we think the reason is because in the catalog, we have to list staff next to it because we have no idea how we're going to how we're going to staff that class. We, we can't put a name next to it. We believe that if we put somebody's name next to it, that that would be their class that it'll make. Can you teach Friday morning? And I said, yes. So they put my name next to it, the class made, and I've been there now for 17 years teaching communication. I, I wanted to be a teacher. God somehow managed to give that desire of my heart to me, and yet he called me to this as well, which I thought wasn't going to be very good. And now, I'm at Redemption Church. I, I got to tell you, this is great. I love pastoring this church. It's hard. Of course it is. Every job is hard. But I love pastoring this church. What I thought was bad turned out to be really good. Let me tell you something. There is great joy in the sovereignty of God if we would just open our arms to it. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your words of truth and for especially Luke recording what has happened to Paul. And and we just pray that we would learn from all of that. We pray that um, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would remind us once again, Jesus went to the cross for our sins, came busting out of that tomb to give us life. And we praise you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.